Hello, my name is Jenny Nichols, and this is a special presentation on our Buscular Mycorrhizal Fungi, presented by Rachel Jesse in November 2020 during a permaculture online event. If you'd like to see the slides with your presentation, you can watch this on the Northern Nevada Permaculture YouTube channel. Uh, presentation I'm giving you is part of a portfolio that I'm submitting for a course that I've been taking, and it's a course that uh, was given by Peter McCoy. If that name rings a bell, he has over 17 years of experience studying exclusively uh, mushrooms and mycelium and the ecology of mycorrhizae. And so he offered this extensive course and um, it comes with certification. So submitting the portfolio is part of getting certification and whatnot. So I thank you all for um, being able and willing and hopefully interested to listen in on, um, on mycorrhizae. So clearly there's many different kinds of mushrooms and virtually all mushrooms have a mycorrhizae of some sort. Um, however, the one I'm talking about specifically is arbuscular mycorrhizae and it's the most common that creates a root association um, all around the world. And this has a lot of implications, not just for plant health, but for soil health. And so I chose this one specifically because I thought it would be really interesting for people in the permaculture world and also people in um, just agriculture and horticulture. So to start off, the kingdom, the fungal kingdom is really extensive. Um, so on the tree of life, you have animal, you have bacteria, you have uh, prokaryotic cells, and you have the fungal kingdom. And just to give you an idea of how extensive and diverse it is, you have the whole animal kingdom, and then you have these five main taxonomic groups. And each taxonomic group is as diverse as the whole animal kingdom in of itself. So our buscular mycorrhizae are in the glomeromycota family. There's over 300 species and they form relationships with, as I said before, virtually all plants and all ecosystems on the planet. The um, exclusions are Antarctica and the plant exclusions are um, the family, the species in um, Nebraska species and the Xenopod species. They are differentiated by how they reproduce and they reproduce asexually. And it's a really interesting thing that I'll explain a little bit more later, but basically they produce spores and they require plant roots in order to reproduce. So they cannot live independently in the soil. Um, and also arbuscular mycorrhizae don't make a mushroom. So there's a lot of other um, mycorrhizae that have um, symbiotic relationships that do make fruiting bodies, but this is not one of them. So this is how it works. <laughs> mycorrhizae, they penetrate the root of a plant and they can either sort of encase the root and sort of encase the cells within the root, but the arbuscular mycorrhizae actually penetrate 
the cells of the roots. So uh, what happens is the arbuscular mycorrhizae, they release a spore and the spore gets germinated if a plant releases a chemical, a chemical called strigolactone. And these strigolactones basically trigger the germination of the spore. And then this little hyphal thread starts to grow. And the hyphal threads are basically what you see in the, the background of the screen right now. They're all those little white hairs that make up the mass of mycelium. And so it starts to grow and those strigolactones will attract it to the plant root. And then the arbuscular mycorrhizae, they also release a chemical called, well, we'll just call it mycofactors for now to keep it simple. And this, what it does, it's really interesting. It, it tells the plant root that it's intending to come and make a relationship with the root and the cells of the root. So the plant actually adapts the cytoskeleton of the cells. That way, the hyphal thread can actually penetrate into the epidermis of the root and then in through the cell walls. Um, so this is a really interesting exchange um, and communication. And Arbuscular mycorrhizae, and pretty much all mycorrhizae for that matter, cannot enter the plant, the, the roots of a plant, unless the plant releases this chemical. So it's all, it's sort of, um, it's kind of a way of saying it has to give them permission. Uh, so the plant has to want to make that uh, relationship and association. So at that point, when it, once it enters the cells, it creates these things called arbusculars and the hyphal threads sort of fill up these cells. And at that point, there's this sort of fluid matrix that fills in between um, all of the, the root cells. And that's the place where the nutrient exchange happens. Um, so again, these, these spores in our muscular mycorrhizae are completely dependent on plants. So plants give them carbon as their sugar and nutrient and energy source through photosynthesis. In exchange, the mycorrhizae give them, uh, the main things are nitrogen and phosphorus. So if an arbuscular mycorrhizae releases its spores and there's no plants around or the plants aren't interested or willing to accept um, the new hyphal threads and the new system, it will die after seven days. So the spore only has seven days worth of energy and resources to keep itself alive. Um, so some of the really amazing, there's so many amazing things, but I'll, I'll point out the main ones. Um, so arbuscular mycorrhizae, when they form a symbiotic relationship with a plant, um, the plant is, uh, is hosting more carbon. So there's more carbon mass in the plant and the root system. It offers nitrogen, it offers phosphorus. Um, there's copper and zinc, which allow the beneficial bacteria to exist and thrive, which also in turn helps fix nitrogen and create the little nodules on the roots that fix the nitrogen. Arbuscular mycorrhizae are also really good for helping a plant resist uh, drought. 
um, soil salinity, uh, heavy metal toxins, and also disease. Now, the disease isn't necessarily combated by the mycorrhizae, but because the plant is so much more healthy and it has all of its space already filled with this mycorrhizae, it's sort of indirectly um, helping them resist disease. And then for soil, again, it's this huge carbon sink. So it's just capturing all of this carbon and holding on to it. The mycorrhizae in and of itself is mostly made up of carbon molecules. Um, and uh, so all of these, all of these nutrients that exist in the soil already are being basically sent into the plant and exchanged. There's uh, more carbon coming into the mycelium. Then you get like all these little insects in the soil that eat the mycelium and the hyphal threads. And then their excre excrement becomes more carbon and more nutrients. So you have these little like micro ecosystems happening and that creates this huge cycle of nutrients that's just endless. And then the extensive network of the mycelium and the roots also helps with erosion. Um, that's a huge one. Erosion, which it's sort of a, a it goes two ways. Uh, it also helps with water retention. It sort of acts like a sponge. And then the last thing I wanted to mention is, oh right, the antibiotics that mycelium release. So they actually release these ant antibodies into the soil, and that does deter uh, soil pathogens. So one thing I really want to emphasize, and it's something I feel pretty passionate about because of my studies in, um, in agroecology and environmental sustainability, is the issues that we're facing right now with eutrophication. So all of the excess nitrogen and phosphorus that's uh, circulating the globe right now. So synthetic nitrogen, <clears throat> it was invented um, just after the turn of the century in 1909. And for agriculture, this was, this was a huge, huge improvement. And the guy who figured out how, how to create it, he actually won a Nobel Prize. And so it's become a huge thing in the market and really important these days. And a, a lot of farmers are dependent <clears throat> on synthetic nitrogen for fertilizer and phosphorus. But basically, when you add it to the soil, when you feed your plants, they can only absorb a certain amount. And even the amount that they do absorb, they don't hold on to it. Once, once the plant is harvested, you have all of this excess nitrogen plus the excess nitrogen that um, didn't get absorbed in the first place. And then, of course, run off from irrigation or weather. And it ultimately leaches into groundwater systems and into oceans. And you get this thing called eutrophication. And so we have a lot of excess nitrogen and phosphorus on the globe. And what it does is it actually prevents our buscular mycorrhizae from forming these relationships with plants. Uh, it changes the pH in the soil, which can um, make the soil inhospitable. 
again, the plant has to accept the mycorrhizae. So if it already has all of the nutrients it needs, then it has no reason to accept it. And this has been studied extensively um, in lab experiments. We see the behavior. And <clears throat> so basically you get this runoff, you don't have all, these, all of these benefits from the mycorrhizae, you don't have the microorganisms, you don't have that natural nutrient cycling and your soils eventually get depleted because they're abused and there's not that life existing. It's just, it's something I, I really hope that the, the masses will understand someday, that it's like common knowledge so that gardeners and small farms can start to implement other ways of um, improving their soil and improving their yield. Um, one of the things I, I wanted to mention before, but I didn't, was um, the yield. Certain plants like corn and barley and wheat and onions, if they have a relationship with arbuscular mycorrhizae, their yield can be two to six times what uh, a conventional um, crop would be. So an, a really, really amazing thing that contributes to this whole system of creating these micro ecosystems and communities within the soil is this thing called biocrust. I think a lot of people have heard of the term and the word humus. So this is it's very similar. It's not exactly the same thing, or they can be both at the same time. So if you remember um, the first slide and we looked at the different taxonomic groups, um, arbuscular mycorrhizae is in the glomeromycota group. And it's called this because of this uh, molecule that it creates called glomalin. And glomalin is essentially a protein. It's this really sticky protein and it acts as a glue. And glomalin was um, actually discovered really recently. I have it written down here. It was discovered in 1995 by this lady named Sarah Wright. And she found that glomalin was responsible for creating the soil aggregates. So soil is made up of so many different things. You have sand, silt, clay, you've got minerals, you've got water, you've got organic matter, you've got mycorrhizae, you've got bacterias, and glomalin is what holds it all together. And so really healthy soils will have this. And so when it's when it's held all together, you also get porosity and that porosity allows more oxygen to pen penetrate deeper. It allows the roots and mycelium could to go deeper um, and branch a lot more extensively. Also helps with water retention. And the biocrust is essentially this term and this idea for having this living soil, like it's a very living and um, animate uh, universe in of itself. I don't think I need to explain the, the little thing, the little um, image here on the side, but when I found that, I, I thought it was really cool um, how they sort of isolated the glomalin from, um, from the soil and then you get something that looks sort of like 
beach sand afterwards. So um, mycelium is, as you know, really extensive. In forests, it's hugely responsible for all of the nutrient cycling. I'm sure you guys have already heard of some of this. It's become really popular um, and amazing news in the last decade is basically how they um, communicate and they exchange nutrients. So if there's a, a mother tree and her seedling isn't getting enough light, um, she'll give the carbon and nutrients that it needs since it's not, you know, uh, having as much uh, photosynthetic activity. Um, but beyond nutrient exchange, they also, and, and this also is true for uh, mycorrhizae systems in um, gardens and even small landscapes, which is if a plant is attacked, it could be by another fungus, it could be by insects, what it will do is it will also communicate this attack. And so other plants will start creating these um, uh, defense chemicals. And usually that's some sort of tannin, um, which makes the, the insects not want to eat it, or it'll create these antibiotics that will ward off the, um, the, the pathogen or the fungus. And so you can have two plants that are many yards apart and the, the other one won't have the same, um, uh, the same effects because it will have been prepared um, with this information that's been communicated. And again, this is something that has been um, studied in lab experiments by isolating plants and only uh, having their root systems contact via the mycelium. So this whole signaling is it's pretty, um, it's pretty narrow. So because our vascular mycorrhizae can have relationships with virtually all plants around the world, it means that their way of communicating is, is pretty basic and it applies to all plants and all mycorrhizae. However, what's really important are the adaptations. So, for example, if you take if you take a mycelium sample from a forest and you go and inoculate it in your garden, it's not necessarily going to be the right thing to do because that mycelium network in the forest has adapted so much to that specific climate, to those specific plants and the different stressors and environmental factors. So it's sort of like um, sort of like taking a, a probiotic supplement that has all these billions of different cultures and different varieties, but our bodies are so extensive that we don't know which are the right ones. So it's interesting to keep this in mind when you go to buy an inoculum from a, a large company. There's a lot um, in the U.S. and they basically pick a few strains that are very common and they proliferate them um, using roots to grow them on a, on a root culture, essentially. And then you buy these tablets or you buy this powder and you inoculate your plants in your soil. Oftentimes it will work really well. And I've had um, good success with these, but it's not necessarily always going to work. And in some cases it will actually deter the plant growth. So what I am trying to advocate for and actually um, do myself is 
culture, local and regional arbuscular mycorrhizae so that they can already be um, specific to the climate, to the types of plants. The, the next thing I'll, um, I'll show you will explain why this is why this is so important. But first, here's a couple of photos that I took um, with my microscope recently, trying to isolate some spores from some soil samples. These ones were from uh, the northeast corner of Nevada. And I took a soil sample that was next to a serviceberry tree. And this serviceberry tree was on the side of the road and it was full of berries. And it hadn't been watered. It was pretty high elevation. Um, it was a drought year. So I'm looking at this tree thinking, wow, it looks so healthy. And it's been under a lot of stress this last year, at least. Um, I have to take a soil sample because I know there's mycorrhizae here. And sure enough, there was. And out of all the soil samples I've taken so far, this has been the one that has um, the highest uh, density of uh, spores. The, um, these are two different ones. I'm, I'm still attempting to identify them because there's, there's literally thousands of different kinds. Um, but the picture on the right, you can see the spore in uh, sort of the center of the screen and it has this little like, like nodule out of the side. That is where a hyphal thread would start growing out. You can also see in these ones here where the hyphal threads are starting to um, extend out of the spore and they got broken off at some point. <clears throat> Here's another one and you can actually see some of these hyphal threads um, on each side of these two spores. These other dark blobs in here are um, probably just soils or minerals. It's really quite challenging to isolate uh, spores. So I wanna, I wanna tell you some really um, wild facts about fungi that I find really fascinating because um, I geek out on <laughs> mushrooms and mycelium. Um, but just to give you an idea of how vast and how diverse fungal kingdom is, if you combine the bacteria, the plant and the animal kingdom, it's larger than all three of those combined. Even the glomeromycota species, that in itself is so like morphologically diverse from the other taxonomic groups that some scientists actually think it should be its own uh, kingdom on the tree of life. It's really wild for me to try to um, wrap my brain around that, uh, especially because we still know so little about fungi in general. Humans, but not just humans, uh, virtually all eukaryotic organisms, which means more complex celled organisms, have one nucleus in their cell. And the nucleus contains the DNA. Inside mycorrhizae, they have many cells. Uh, our buscular mycorrhizae have up to um, you see written here, 35,000 nucleus in one cell. And what this means is that they have so much DNA and so much genetic diversity just in one single cell. And this is why that regional specificity is so important. And if you think about um, adaptations and evolutions, 
and you question, well, how can they be so genetically diverse if they uh, have only asexual reproduction? Well, this is something super fascinating and really quite alien if you think about it. Um, so recently, uh, scientists have uh, discovered that the hyphal threads can fuse. And when they fuse together, they can exchange their uh, genetic information and they can select the most beneficial, but they have this huge arsenal um, inside every single cell. So they've been evolving for over 450 million years, just sort of gathering all of this genetic information and exchanging with each other. <clears throat> so to me, that <laughs> that's really amazing. And just the capacity to be so independent, um, yet so dependent on root systems. It's, um, yeah, just uh, something to sort of think about interesting thing is they have a triple helix DNA. Uh, most things have double helix DNA. Uh, if you take a, a soil sample of healthy soil, the mycelial network can create up to 90 square meters of surface area. So that's sort of thinking about how our miles of intestines fit inside of our own bodies. Like how does 90 square meters fit inside of one square meter? <laughs> and um, mycelium can uh, make an actual root network uh, increase a thousand times. So if you take a plant and just look at its roots by itself, and then you add uh, a mycelium and it develops a strong relationship over time, it can increase that root system over a thousand times. Getting nitrogen in the soil can be achieved a couple of ways. I'm sure you guys know all about cover crops and legumes. But our buscular mycorrhizae are also really powerful and potent in doing this. But of course, not just for the nitrogen, but all of the other benefits um, that I explained. So yeah, I, I hope that kids are learning about this. Um, maybe you guys will talk about it to your friends and family over the holidays. <laughs> Probably not, but maybe the subject will come up. So um, yeah, I think it's good to um, that people know about it and to know that there are uh, really viable alternatives. Excellent. So um, a message from Sunny. Um, that's very interesting because I've noticed that mud and polluted water doesn't quote unquote stick or settle. It's easily disturbed into tiny, very tiny elements. I think that was the section where you were talking about like the biotic glues and holding pore space and that kind of thing. Yeah. So <clears throat> um, that's probably a kind of soil that it's really heavy in, in clay and silt, and there's not a lot of organic matter in it. So it just stays sort of like this. Yeah muddy, muddy mass. Um, I, I lived in Morocco for a couple of years and I was living on a piece of land that had really disturbed soil. Um, and it was really clay heavy too. And when it rained, which was hardly ever, but when it did rain, it was really sticky and heavy and slippery. And, um, yeah, 
Um, okay, so the next one is from Carrie. Do you know of any published studies that look at the effectiveness of inoculants? I've heard from ecologists that they are a waste of money and not worth using. I do know of published studies. I can um, I can gather some of them up and send them to you um, via email or um, I, I suppose I can email it to Jenny and she can send it to whoever's interested. But yes, I, I do have um, some peer-reviewed studies on this, um, which basically... Um, highlights what I was explaining before about the difference between commercially produced inoculum and locally produced inoculum. So I, I will get that to, um, to Jenny to send to you. Next question from Becky. How high of temperature does it survive? That's a really good question. Um, our vascular mycorrhizae, I actually don't know at what temperature they die. However, there's other um, kinds of funguses and mycorrhizae that form symbiotic relationships with um, bacteria and algae and chitin in the bottom of the ocean, and they can withstand temperatures of, oh, wow. Um, hundreds of degrees Fahrenheit, there's these thermal vents that sort of push out this really hot water at um, the deepest depths of the ocean. And there's been um, fungus found down there thriving. Um, however, that's a little off subject. Our vascular mycorrhizae, um, I'm, I'm not sure. They do uh, live and thrive in deserts as well. So if you, uh, for example, think about the temperatures in the Sonoran Desert, you can get um, above uh, 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And the mycorrhizae there are really um, thriving and allowing the uh, a lot of cactus, um, a lot of shrubs to withstand those long periods of drought. Um, I will, I should look into that though, what the temperature threshold is. Um, next question from Dustin. Um, how can we find local cultures to use in our garden, orchard, or other landscapes? So what you would do is you would go to <clears throat> a place that has had undisturbed soil for, say, at, at least five years. You want to find a place that hasn't been compacted or people haven't been walking, where no fertilizer has been applied, where no pesticides have been applied. So a place that's really been left alone. And you would take a soil sample. And um, this is essentially one of the other projects I'm working on right now for my portfolio. So you would take a soil sample and at that point you could try to isolate the spores and look at them under a microscope and make sure they're there and try to identify them. Or you could just take the soil sample and use it as um, an inoculum, but because they need uh, roots to survive and to proliferate, you would take some some grass, um, some wild grass, for example, you would dig that up, 
um, you would put it in a, in a greenhouse or whatever space inside of its own container. You can put it in um, a really nutrient deficient medium um, like cocoa coir or um, uh, just really poor soil. And at that point, the uh, grass would want to accept the mycorrhizae. So whatever mycorrhizae there are in that soil sample that you've taken, the grass will um, will bond with it and create that relationship. At that point, it's gonna start proliferating over time. And this is gonna take a little while. It's gonna take at least six months. Um, and at that point, you have sort, sort of a, a larger sample, and then you can take um, a little bit of that and sprinkle it sort of in the roots. Um, usually you wanna get it in the roots. Um, if you're planting a new tree, you put it at the bottom of the hole, or uh, if it's an existing, you just sort of go at least four inches, four inches deep and sprinkle it there. So that's um, the most basic way of creating your own local inoculum. And you can you know, pick from different places and um, just do an experiment and see what works best. Um, next one from Trevor. Thanks, Rachel. I was wondering if you have any recommendations for where we could look to find resources on integrating AM into our home gardens. Yes, I do have resources for that. And again, I will send that to Jenny and she can send it off to you guys. Um, I would like to also, um, since you asked this question, um, offer if anyone would like to sort of be a, a guinea pig or let their garden be a guinea pig for the experiment that I'm working on right now, I would be really happy to um, give you some of the inoculum that I'm attempting to create. And that way you can try it in your garden and see if it works. But um, yes, I can get your resources on, on how to do all that. Okay, and then from Sunny, that was in reference to the Gamini question mark slide. Oh, glomalin. So I have um, a question. So my understanding is that, um, let's say that we're building up our fungal and bacteria, whatever, um, that we have available in our soil, in our gardens. Is it really important that we consider a water purification system that removes the chloramine and chlorine from the water so that we're not um, killing what we have growing in the soil? Um, it's not necessary, but it does definitely help. Um, so depending on the, the species of mycorrhizae, it's going to react differently to different soil types and different chemicals for that matter. The thing that affects it them the most is soil pH. I'm not sure how chlorine affects the soil pH. Um, <clears throat> so of course the water pH affects the soil pH and Chlorine isn't necessarily going to kill them, but it, if it wasn't there, it definitely would improve the situation. Um, I'm not sure that water purification is, is necessary. 
Um, if you're growing orchids, it definitely is. Um, but for everything else, I think it really depends on the amount of chlorine in your, uh, in your water source. Um, another question um, there, I don't know exactly where I heard this because I've heard some things over a period of time, but there was one person that suggested taking like a small bag of rice, um, it might have been cooked rice, and putting it in kind of like a, like a nylon bag so that it was permeable, and then burying it maybe like a foot underground at the base of a native tree um, and leaving it there for a period of time. And then when you dig it up, um, it was showing that there was like the fungal threads uh, were there as a way to um, to get native aspects. So I don't know if you've heard of that before, if you think that's a good idea or not a good idea. Yeah, I have heard of that before. Um, the sort of porosity between um, the each individual rice grain is for a lot of mushrooms and mycelium, like the optimal space. And I've heard of some people actually using it in their substrate for growing mushrooms. Um, so if you bury a bag of rice in a nylon bag at the base of a tree, the hyphal threads will penetrate it. However, like once you take it out, once you remove it from the soil, you're essentially like breaking that bond and that um, that network. And it's at that point has about seven days before it's going to start dying off. So if you wanted to use that as like your inoculum, you would need to make sure that you already had another root system available to put it in that would accept it to allow it to keep growing. If, yeah, okay. I hope that answers the question. Another question, I know like um, Dr. Elaine Ingham, she talks about really stressing how incredibly important like you have to, to always have something growing in the soil and to kind of use perennial plants to cover the soil and then just to plant within that, even like in vegetable gardens, et cetera. But I think she's stated before that the challenge is to try to find the right plants for the right area that you can kind of leave there. Do you have suggestions if we're going to use either like a perennial crop that we're going to grow within or like cover crops that you would just kind of let reseed? I, I don't know, what, what are your opinions on that concept? Mm, that's, that's a really good question. And it's, it's something that I've thought about myself, how to always keep roots in the ground and depending on what your lifestyle is and how much time you dedicate to your garden, Sometimes that's hard to do. Uh, cover crop is great. You don't necessarily have to have a, a perennial, for example, in every garden bed. If you have them nearby, it's great. If you have trees nearby, that's great. So the diversity is probably the most important thing. If you have plant diversity in sort of the the area surrounding your garden, or if your beds are um, mixed up with perennials and then annuals. If you do want to mix them and, and definitely have like a root system there all the time, I'm not sure that there's any 
perennial that's better than another. There might be. I don't know about it. But just keep in mind those those two groups that don't um, have associations with mycorrhizae, which are the brassica species and the chenopods. So, you know, don't don't count on those to do anything for you. Um, there's both annuals and perennials in both of those groups. Yeah, I would say the most important thing is diversity, definitely keeping roots going as all the time if possible. So what's going to happen is if you leave a plot of soil empty for a period of time and you have but you have other vegetation nearby, they're going to keep hosting the mycorrhizae. So, you know, eventually they will inoculate that soil that has been fallow or even if it's just for a month or so, they're going to already be dying off at that point. So if let's say that you have an area where you're growing vegetables and the season is over, would you still take the extra step of covering the soil? Let's say that you didn't get a chance to plant the cover crop in time. Would you put straw or hay over the top of it to kind of insulate and protect the fungi that are in the soil? That depends on the quality of your soil and how much you've tilled it. Um, if you, for example, if you harvest and you pile the soil back up where it was, it's okay. Covering the soil is always a good idea. Um, if it's covered in snow, that's also really helpful too. Um, it insulates it and keeps the sun off a bit. Yeah, I would say always covering the soil is good. It's not going to make or break the the biotic life in there. Um, the main thing is drying out in the sun. So again, that depends on the quality of the soil. Uh, Yashila said, um, is it true that having mushrooms grow around trees and or plants means that your soil is very healthy? Um, no. <laughs> uh, in a forest, yes. Um, however, uh, there's mushrooms that thrive in really poor soil and sometimes uh, toxic soil with uh, heavy metals. So most of the time it's, it's true, but not necessarily all of the time. Uh, an example is sometimes you see those uh, what are called, I think, fairy circles in people's lawns. And that's a, that's a species of mushroom that doesn't necessarily say like, oh, this lawn is really healthy. Um, they just thrive in nutrient-poor soils. Another mushroom um, that I'm really fascinated with called the ink cat mushroom or shaggy mane um, that also thrives in nutrient-poor soils. And you can have a huge bloom of them. And it looks really impressive. <laughs> that actually happened out here recently. Um, but that happens in like lawns or ne neglected soils, even really compact clay heavy soils. Um, so it depends on the kind of mushroom and it depends on the environment. If it's in a forest, uh, definitely yes. Using a broad fork, is that still um, a positive thing to do? Is that like bringing that oxygen in? Is that not like damaging the biotic glue structure, pore space? Is that okay? Using what? I'm sorry? A broad fork. So like you're not tilling, but you're lifting, you know, from making. Yeah, that's much better. 
That's much better. Um, if you can get away with it, something I struggle with is tilling. I, I wish I didn't have to till, but sometimes I do. And, um, it just requires time and effort to build up your soil to a point where you don't have to till it as much. Um, so yeah, a broad fork is, is really good for that much better than, than tilling. Definitely. And let's say that you have a good sample of, let's say compost that has a lot of fungal element in there. That is really good. Do you suggest um, doing like a compost tea or something like that and applying it as a foliar feed to plants? Is that idea um that that oh that always works great but if you're if you're specifically talking about um a compost that has um mycorrhizae species in it uh applying it that way wouldn't be best thing to do so making a tea is really good for the bacteria but it's not necessarily the right way to apply the mycorrhizae those need to go in like directly in the soil um so it's it's you're gonna get uh um you're just gonna get a, a lot better response if if it gets incorporated in the soil rather than making a tea specifically for the the mycorrhizae there's other fungal species that are really good as a foliar spray but not the arbuscular mycorrhizae okay well thank you so much i really um really appreciate your sharing your amazing knowledge with all of us yeah, thank you guys so much for um, for listening. And I'm definitely not an expert. I'm still learning a lot. Um, I really appreciate your questions too, because it makes me um, makes me look a little bit deeper into things that I might have overlooked. Yeah. Uh, again, if anyone has any questions, I would be happy to engage. If you're interested in being a guinea pig, that would be great too. Um, if you guys want to leave me any feedback, that would be amazing. I would throw in my portfolio if you want to say a little bit something about the presentation. It's not necessary if you want to. Um, yeah. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for listening to Northern Nevada Green Living Podcast. Please take good care of you and yours. Stay well and help us all make this a kinder, healthier, and greener community for all. 